America, where money grows on trees <laughs> and streets are lined with gold. Well, at least that's what I perceived when I first passed through Ellis Island of New York City on October 30th, 1964. I quickly realized how wrong I was the first night I stayed at my friend's round-down apartment in the slum of Harlem. Even more surprising was the day after, October 31st, when little people were in masks, ring doorbells, and said, trick or treat. <laughs> I said to myself, what have I got myself into? <laughs> Angela, my college sweetheart, came a few months later, and we married the next year. I also assumed just because we were in love, we would simply live happily ever after. How naive I was. <laughs> we were not Christian then, and after years of unresolved issues, our marriage was a disaster. So with encouragement from both of our sons, we began the paperwork for a divorce after 28 years of marriage. In the same year, on May 15, 1993, our son Christopher came home after his first year at the University of Louisville dental school. He made an announcement, I am gay. Since our marriage relationship was hopeless, I did not work as a team with my wife to face this enormous challenge. Not only did I not comfort her, but I also accused her for making our son gay. Christopher's declaration affirmed my belief that we should all go our separate ways. Let him be because there's nothing I can do. Besides, isn't it more important to be happy? But my wife responded quite differently. You would never think that three simple words, I am gay, could cause so much pain. I actually thought I could threaten Christopher with the automaton to choose the family or choose homosexuality. But Christopher already bought into the lie that he couldn't change, that he was born gay. So he said, if you cannot accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. Without any hesitation, Christopher picked up his bags and left. Nothing can describe how I felt at that moment. It was worse than receiving news of Christopher's death. He could have cut me with a knife, and it would have hurt less. In my mind, Christopher, who was closest to me, and my last ray of hope had also betrayed me. I was at the end of my rope as my world fell apart around me. I had no more reason to live. So I determined to do the unthinkable. I was going to end my life. Even though I was not a Christian at that time, I felt the need to meet with the minister who gave me a pamphlet on homosexuality. Then I bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville, where I planned to say goodbye to Christopher for the last time before ending it all. With only my purse and a pamphlet from the minister, I bought on the train to Louisville, thinking that death was the only answer to all my problems never being much of a reader. 
On the train, I began to read a pamphlet which explained the plan of salvation, that all of us are sinners, yet God loves us in spite of our sin. God opened the eyes of my heart. Then I realized that just as God loves me, I could love Christopher in spite of him living as a gay man. After arriving in Louisville, I called a number at the back of the pamphlet and was connected to a Christian lady in Louisville who began to disciple me. For six weeks, I immersed myself into the Bible and felt as if I couldn't soak up enough. You see, I went to Louisville expecting to end my life. In reality, I did. One of my favorite verses today is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. After six weeks, I, I got a phone call from the lady who was discipling Angela. She was very excited to tell me that your wife has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She has been saved. I was not very pleased. I told her, this is not a good news. This is my worst nightmare because from now on, she has God on her side. But what I realized that her transformation was not a Sunday-only change, but affected every aspect of her life. What she had was not religion, but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Little did I know God also worked on me, so I started going to church with her, and a friend of ours invited us to a Bible study called the BSF, Bible Study Word Fellowship, where we grow deeper into the understanding of God and his word. This was God's way for preparing both of us for the difficult years ahead as our son Christopher headed deeper and deeper into the world of homosexuality. For my childhood years, I did what most Chinese American kids did. I can distill them to three things. First, you must obey your parents. Second, do well in school. Bring home those A's, no B's, or else no rice for you. <laughs> and third, also very important for Asians, you must practice piano. <laughs> See, I didn't fit in with the other Caucasian boys in America because I looked different, acted different, and I had different interests. And God had given me the gifts of music, of sensitivity. And Satan can't take away those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having attractions to the same sex was when I was nine years old after I came across pornography at a friend's house at nine. At that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex and they soon became my master. So with pornography fueling my sexual attractions, I had my first encounter when I was 16 years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps reserves. In my early 20s, I started secretly going out to the gay clubs, and when I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where I started dental school, pursuing my doctorate in dentistry, I no longer kept it a secret, and I came out of the closet. 
I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship, seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found temporarily, but it only left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. But without much money as a dental student, I supported my habit by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, and even a professor. Not something I suggest. See, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was to receive my doctorate, the administration expelled me. So my parents flew down from Chicago to Louisville, Kentucky, and I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My dad's a dentist. He knew the dean really well. And all they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit, and I stay in school. Besides, isn't what, that what any Chinese parent should do anyway? <laughs> to my surprise, as we sat in the dean's office, my mother looked at the dean and said, it's not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And they said that they're going to support whatever decision the school made. For Asians, education is everything. Career, everything. Doctorate, everything. But there's nothing more important than our children knowing Jesus. Well, let me just tell you, I was not very happy about that decision. They were not on my side, they were on the school side. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago to the bright lights and big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over, the, took over the drug scene, the gay community, and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Because in my world, I had become God. Leon and I had no idea that Christopher was doing drugs. But we knew his biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So I sent him Christian cards several times a week. And I filled them with encouraging words, scripture, and hymns. At the bottom of each card, I signed, Love you forever, Mom. But little did I know he never read them and simply tossed them into the trash. Angela and I knew the only way we can see our son was if we flew to Atlanta, so we did. But on the second day, he kicked us out, not even allow us to call our friend to pick us up. Before leaving, I want to give Christopher something which, which was my very first Bible. Now, surprisingly, he refused. But I left on his counter anyway and walked out the door. We found out as soon as we walked out the door, he took my Bible and threw it into the trash. It was more than obvious that he was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my wife and I committed not to focus on the hopelessness, 
but on the promises of God. Yes. And my wife began to pray a very bold and dangerous prayer. Lord, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for eight years and once fasted 39 days for Christopher. She would literally spend hours each morning in her prayer closet, reading her Bible, interceding for Christopher, and praying for herself and for me. Angela wrote out many of her prayers, and following is one of those prayers. I will stand in the gap for Christopher. I will stand until the victory is won, until Christopher's heart changes. I will stand in the gap every day, and there I will fervently pray. And Lord, just one favor, don't let me waver. If things get quite rough, which they may, I will never give up on that son, nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I will not quit as I intercede, though it may take years. I give you my fears and tears as I trust every moment I plead. I pray those prayers for eight years, and it seemed that God was not answering them. But during those years, God did answer my prayers, just not in the way I expected. His answer for me was, wait, be still, and know that I am God. Looking back upon those years when I prayed for change, God did bring change. The change was not yet in Christopher, but the change was in me and my husband. What God intended to do for that time was that we will be changed, that we will be transformed, that we will be trophies of God's mercy. As what Chambers said, we are not here to prove God answers prayer. We are here to be living monuments of God's grace. As we live out those years of waiting, we learn to walk and live as monuments of his grace as God drew us to himself each and every day. Often answered a prayer doesn't come quickly. And this definitely was not an exception. But my parents were unwavering in their faithfulness to intercede on my behalf. Like the persistent widow, my mother bombarded heaven with her prayers. She knew that it would take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came one day with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my front doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. <laughs> I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with a street value equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. 
With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Lannis City Detention Center. So I tried calling my friends. You know those type of friends that say, whenever you need something, just give me a call. Those friends that really got me more into trouble than they were to get any good for me. Well, what I don't, didn't know was I had a praying mama at home. Watch out. And she knew as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. And remember, she loves bold prayers. Well, years before that, she began praying specifically that somehow, some way, God would cause all of my friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my call. So you mothers, beware of your prayers. They're going to come true. <laughs> so, so I was down to the bottom of the list, bottom of the list, home. And I didn't want to make that phone call, as I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But my mother's first words were, son, are you okay? No condemnation, no berating words, just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not God's anger. It's not God's wrath. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you could believe it or not, because I hadn't called him in years. And she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So as she hung up that phone, fighting back to tears, she knew she had to do just as that good old hymn says, Count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down, and she reached out next to the phone, a calculator, an atom machine, and she tore off a little piece of the atom machine tape, and she wrote on that small piece of paper these first blessings. Christopher is in a safe place <laughs> compared to before. And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list of blessings of this little piece of paper and taping more pieces of paper to it. And today, this list of blessings is longer wow. and taller than she is, both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block. And I was trying to stay to myself. I didn't really want to mingle with those people that were, you know, those really bad people, those criminals. Because, <laughs> of course, I didn't think I was a criminal. And I passed by this garbage can. They don't take the trash out every day in jail. So the garbage was overflowing out of the can. It, it smelled flies were circling around it. And I looked at this heap of trash, and I thought, my life 
It's so much like the contents of this trash. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. And with my head down, I was about to pass by that garbage can, but something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell, and I opened up that good book for the first time. I read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I did not think that this was the answer to my problems. Honestly, I thought, I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands, and I better pass it somehow. But what we know, many of us know, that what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper. But what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. And it is living. It is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight. And I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. So they handcuffed me, chained my hands around my waist, shackled my feet together. I shuffled into the nurse's office. The nurse shut the door behind me, sat me down, and I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words, and she couldn't even give me eye contact. So she resigned to writing something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down at this piece of paper, and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read H-I-V. A few days before Christmas, I received Christopher's phone call from jail. The noise in the background could not cover up his sad and hopeless words. Mom, I am HIV positive. His sullen and weak voice trailed off as my body went limp. I felt dizzy and the world around me seemed to stop. Ever since Christopher told us he was gay, I had lived with this constant fear that Christopher might one day contract this deadly virus. My worst nightmare was now a reality. Christopher was sentenced to six years in federal prison but news of his HIV status was like a death sentence, a verdict I could not accept. Hang up the phone, the pains of grief torn at my broken heart like a knife. Aimlessly, I stumbled up the steps and dragged my heavy body into my prayer closet. Under the cross, I fell to my knees as dim tears blur my eyes. This affliction was more than I could bear. In the silence of my sorrow, 
a melody began to play in my heart. The soft and sweet string of a hymn filled my ears and repeat over and over. It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. After receiving that devastating news, I was lying in my cell on my bed, and I was laying down. And I looked up at the metal bunk above me. There was graffiti, profanity, gang symbols, but someone had scribbled something, and it read, "If you're bored, read Jeremiah 29:11." For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, God was using the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I had done in the past, he still, he still had a plan for me. I had no idea where this plan was going to take me, but God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. I wish I could tell you I got down my knees to the sinner's prayer and everything was just perfect after that. There's no problems. That's far from the truth. God was convicting my dependencies. The most obvious was drugs. But within a few months, God delivered me from that addiction. But the last thing that I was holding on to was my sexuality. I was reading the Bible. It was so clear to me. God loved me unconditionally. And I also came across those passages in the Bible that seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was. So I went to a prison chaplain, and I asked him his opinion on this issue. 
And to my surprise, this prison chaplain actually told me that the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And he gave me a book from his bookshelf, and he said, here, this book explains that view. So with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God, his word, and his unmistakable condemnations against homosexual sex. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain. So I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse every chapter, every page of scripture. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. (laughs) I was looking for justification. I was looking for any type of positive affirmation for a monogamous adult gay relationship. I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God and his word and live as a gay man and pursue a monogamous gay relationship by allowing my feelings to dictate who I was, or abandon pursuing a monogamous relationship by liberating myself from my sexuality and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I chose God. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized that my sexuality should not be the core of who I was. See, I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally, but he doesn't want me to change. But now after reading the Bible, I realize that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. See, my identity shouldn't be defined solely by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded only in my feelings. My identity is not gay, homosexual, or even, get this, or even heterosexual for that matter, because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, God says, be holy, for I am holy. Before coming to Christ, I thought that to please this God of the Bible, I needed to become straight. But even if I became straight, I would still struggle with sin. And besides, God didn't say, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. But neither did he say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. Rather, God said, be holy, for I am holy. So the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That is not the goal. The opposite of homosexuality is holiness. So God told me, don't focus upon your sexuality, your desires, your temptations, but focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity. Because change is not the absence of struggles. Does God ever promise us that you won't struggle with sin? No, change is the freedom to choose holiness in the midst of our struggles. Let me say that again. This is important. Change is not the absence of struggles, but change is the freedom to choose holiness in the midst of our struggles because the ultimate issue is not what I'm struggling with. The ultimate issue is not my temptations, desires, thoughts, sexuality, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. 
as I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal his plan for my life, and he called me to a full-time ministry while I was in prison of all places. And so I realized that it didn't matter where I was, whether in prison or out of prison, because my calling on life would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle, and he shortened my sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew if I was going to continue on a ministry after prison, I'd better learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So... I called him, I said, you know, I should go to maybe Bible college to ask my parents. I called him, collected my parents, and I asked them to mail me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of, which happens to be my hometown in Chicago, called Moody Bible Institute. But then there was silence on the other line, because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> they mailed the application into me to prison. I quickly filled it out. I was so excited when I got it, until I got to the end of the application, where they asked me for references. <laughs> Not any person could write my reference. They had to be people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. Do the math. The only people I knew were people in prison. I had some slim pickings. <laughs> but I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references to Moody. So the greatest miracle of this whole story is that they actually accepted me. <laughs> I was released from prison in July of 2001, and I started the very next month at Moody in August of 2001. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> <laughs> I graduated from Moody in 2005, went on to my Master's of Arts in Biblical Exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School, just finished my Doctorate of Ministry from Bethel Seminary this year. I also had the honor, immense honor, of co-authoring a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. She wrote chapter one, I wrote chapter two. They're alternating narratives uh, uh, with interwoven uh, chapters, and uh, we actually have a few left out in the lobby, uh, and, and we can just take orders for you and then just uh, leave them here and then have them shipped here to the, to the church. Uh, actually, this has been a resource that has been used for small groups and also for Christian uh, high schools. They're using it as their textbook, because we have to. We have so few resources when it comes to biblical sexuality. The world is talking about sexuality, and yet we have a dearth of resources and sexuality, and our youth are getting all this information on sexuality, then why not give them something that talks about uh, holy sexuality, a chapter in our book, uh, but we, we need more resources on sexuality. And um, so we have this book. Also, God has given us back the years that the locusts have taken away. Where now my parents and I, we travel around the nation, around the world, talking about God's grace and God's truth on the issue of sexuality. And then if that wasn't enough, God has a sense of humor. How many of you guys know God has a sense of humor? God has a sense of humor because now I'm back at Moody teaching in the Bible department. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? <laughs> but God has done, God has done far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. In the remaining time we have, I, I thought we would jump into just how now do we live as Christians? How do we share Christ in a context that is saturated with sexual identity confusion, gender identity confusion? So what is a good Christian response to homosexuality? And if we're honest, we would realize that we have not 
We haven't done a very good job, or are pre- we are not perceived to do a good job in reaching out to the gay community. There's a book uh, that has come out of the U.S. called Unchristian. Unchristian. Uh, this book uh, looks at how young Americans view Christians and how young Americans view Christians. They view Christians to not really be so Christian, not to be that Christian. So in this book, there was a survey that was done, and in this survey, uh, it was shown that Christians were viewed to be confusing, not accepting, boring, insensitive, out of touch, too political, old-fashioned, hypocritical, judgmental, and just guess what's at the very, very top. Anti-homosexual. Just look at those numbers, and they broke it down to two groups, those that were raised within the church, they call them outsiders, those that were raised within the church. So outside the church, raised within the church, 91% of those not raised within the church believe that Christians are anti-homosexual. When you see a percentage like that, you might as well say everyone, everyone. How about our youth and young adults? Oh, we teach them, love the sinner, hate the sin. Well, according to this survey, it says that eight out of 10 of the youth in America, and I think that's probably reflective uh, around, especially in the Western world, eight out of 10 of our youth and young adults believe that we are anti-homosexual. I want us to look at what it doesn't say. It doesn't say anti-homosexuality, which possibly I can understand. It's more the issue. But honestly, I don't like to be known for what we're against. I wish we were better known for what we're for. But the survey showed that we are viewed to be anti-homosexual. Big difference. It's only three letters. Big difference. One is more the issue, and the other one is more the person. And so we are viewed, Christians, we are viewed to be against gay people. And that isn't right. God isn't against anyone. As a matter of fact, he's for people turning from their sins and turning to Jesus, and so should we. But unfortunately, people's perception is their reality. So how can we do a better job at approaching not just this issue, but people in the gay community, our loved ones in the LGBT community, those within the church who experience same-sex attractions. What can we do better? There's many ways that I could approach this issue. I could approach this issue politically, or I could approach this issue psychologically or developmentally. But this evening, I want us to use as our foundation the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that okay? I just want to be really upfront here, not going to hold anything back. The gospel of Jesus Christ should guide us in everything that we do. So what is a good gospel-centered Christian response to those in the gay community, those who struggle with same-sex attractions? Four things that we're going to go through quickly. Four things. First of all, we need to make sure that we have the right attitude. We must be convicted about our own sin. If we're going to call anything sin, we need to be serious about all sin. We can't elevate one sin above the other. But as I lived as a gay man, I I believe Christians were telling me that gays and lesbians somehow deserved a hotter place in hell. That Jesus had to hang on the cross a little bit longer for gays and lesbians. Why is that? Because we give the impression that this is one of those sins that's in a category by itself and we overlook other sins like gossiping, jealousy, pride, adultery, fornication, I mean, those aren't so bad. Everyone does those, but heaven forbid if it's homosexuality. And that is when we would elevate one sin above the other. 
All sin will separate you eternally from God. And I don't know how far they're eternally separated from God than you can be than just eternally separated from God. So one, uh, there's, there's no sin. There's, well, actually, there is one great sin, and that is grieving the Holy Spirit. But grieving the Holy Spirit is not homosexuality. And I know that for many evangelical Christians, to think about homosexuality might be unusual for you, and you might even make you un- a little bit uncomfortable, hot under the collar. Oh, that's, that's just weird. That's, kinda, that's gross. Two men sleeping together, two women. Oh, that's disgusting. But I actually think that that feeling of uncomfortableness or even disgust that some people might have when they think about the sin of homosexuality should be a good reminder, a good reminder that it is just a fraction of what God feels when he looks at our own sin. So our sin is just as odious in the eyes of God. Homosexuality is not the worst sin, but our sin is just as odious in the eyes of God. Because isn't it one thing to look at someone else's sin and say, oh, that's so awful. Have you noticed that? Don't we do that a lot? Oh, oh, I would never do that. I mean, that is, I can't believe she's doing that. Well, of course, because that's not your sin, right? And we justify our sin. Oh, it's not so bad. I'm just going to do it today. I'll, I'll stop tomorrow. That's, it's sin, right? And so we need to be convicted because at the end of the day, our desire is to lead people to Jesus. Amen? We want to lead people to Jesus, but that's never done through a holier-than-thou attitude, is it? Have you ever met anyone? I came to Jesus, so this old lady, she was so pompous. No, it's not through, you know, know, someone who's just prideful, holier-than-thou attitude. It's gentleness and humility. So first and foremost, we must be convicted about, about our own sins. Second, we must be consistent consistent. Looking at the ministry of Jesus, he was so patient and compassionate toward those sinners, the pr- prostitute, tax collectors, the adulteress. But he was hardest on the Pharisees. Why? Because they knew better. They knew God's word. They knew God's loving kindness, but they didn't live it out. So they were hypocrites. And the reality is we all have a bit of hypocrisy in our own nature. So we must keep that in check. We must make sure to ask, how might I be inconsistent to the gospel? And when it comes to sexuality, I think we've been inconsistent regarding three things. First of all, regarding relationships. What's your relationship status? Are you married, single? You know, we, 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 we value marriage to be very important, but now there's, there's this imbalance between marriage and singleness. Marriage and singleness. And you might think, what does this have to do with sexuality? A lot. Because if our message to those in the gay community is you need to walk away from those gay relationships, or if our message to our Christian brothers and sisters who struggle with same-sex attractions is don't act upon those feelings, well, what does that mean in reality? That they must be single for a period in their life, if not the rest of their life. And if so, do we have a healthy place for singles to thrive within the Christian community? I think right now, Christians often feel, uh, singles, Uh, often feel like second-class citizens in Christian community because we give this impression that singleness is equated to loneliness. Many of my gay friends tell me, what you're saying is that God wants me to be lonely for the rest of my life. And what they're doing is they're equating singleness with loneliness. But singleness is not equated loneliness. I mean, I actually know some people who are married, and they're still miserably lonely. Right? It's, so it's not marriage that's a cure to loneliness. I'll tell you what's a cure to loneliness. A relationship with God is a cure to loneliness. A relationship with God is a cure to loneliness. But we do give this impression that marriage is equated to happiness. You get married and be so happy. I mean, think back when you guys were children. 
in, in, in primary school, your, your, great, your teachers would teach you fairy tales, right? Read you fairy tales. How do all fairy tales end? Well, first they get married, and then they live happily ever after. End of story. We don't get the 10-year checkup or the 20-year checkup. Holy, they're still living happily ever after. But you know what the real lesson should be? It is not marriage that should bring you ultimate contentment. It's Jesus Christ who should bring you ultimate contentment first. So, you know, and, and hear me out. I, I'm, not, you know, I'm not dissing marriage. I, I know that we have to lift up the beauty and gift of marriage. But I think we have done that at the expense of singleness. So now singleness is this consolation prize. I'm so sorry you're stuck with singleness. I have a friend who was a missionary in China for five years, went there single, came back single. She hadn't seen a bunch of her friends when she was back on furlough. And some of her friends, you know, when they saw her, they were so excited and they asked her all these similar questions. You know, are you dating anyone? Do you have any special in your life? You know, are you married? She's like, no, no, no. Do you know what some of her friends said to her? Can I pray for you? (laughs) It was as if she had cancer. Singleness, by the way, is not cancer. Singleness is not a curse, but we do give that impression that somehow it's a curse. It's unfair. But what does the Bible say about singleness? Paul spends an entire chapter talking about relationships, talking about marriage and singleness in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And in that chapter, you know what Paul says? Not only does he say that singleness is good, he actually says that it is a gift. It's a gift. And I know many people, they read that verse who are single and they say, okay, I know Paul says it's a gift, but what's the return policy on that gift? You know, you got that receipt, I want to, you know, it's like a bad Christmas gift. I don't want that gift. I don't want it. And I get that. And I get that. And I know people who read that, they, they're like, okay, I, I know marriage is a gift, but instead of saying that singleness is a gift, you know what they say instead? They say singleness, whew, that's a calling. That's a serious calling. I mean, not anyone can be single. You have to be either Superman or Wonder Woman to be single. Which, by the way, have you noticed that all superheroes, they're single? What does that communicate? You have to have superhuman powers just to be single. You know, but honestly, I'm single. I'm 43 years old. I'm I'm trying to live out my calling, my gift. And most of my Christian friends are married. And they're happily married. But they do tell me a secret. From a married person, my friends, to a single man. They tell me, marriage, it takes work. (laughs) It really does. It takes giving of yourselves, loving sacrificially. A matter of fact, Ephesians 5, Paul tells men, as a husband, your job is to lay your life down for your wives. Amen, ladies? Amen? So I don't know what husband that doesn't struggle with that almost impossible calling. So do you know what I say tongue-in-cheek? I say marriage. Whew, that's a calling. (laughs) Singleness, that's a gift. I don't have to lay my life down for anyone yet. But I'm not trying to lower one below the other or even say that one is better than the other. The Bible is teaching that godly marriage and godly singleness are two sides of the same coin. We shouldn't emphasize one without emphasizing the other because that would be inconsistent. As a matter of fact, when the Bible says that that singleness is a gift, you know what's the Greek word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 7, 7 to say that it's a gift? He calls it a charisma. A charisma. Charisma, literally in Greek, means a spiritual gift. What are other spiritual gifts? Ephesians 5, prophecy, healing, teaching, hospitality, all these things. And what, do we want those sometimes? How about the gift of prophecy? Jonah, right? Did Jonah want his gift? Not so much. Ezekiel, right? I mean, there's struggles with these gifts. It's not easy, 
It's not easy. And why do we have these gifts? For the, for the building up of the church. Building up, so singleness is a spiritual gift. It's a charisma. It's a charisma. That's the beauty of singleness. So we have to be consistent regarding relationships, marriage, singleness. Because I, don't, I think that we might not even be ready to touch the issue of sexuality, not even just homosexuality, just sexual brokenness, until we reclaim godly singleness first. So first, relationships. Second, we need to be consistent regarding sexuality. Because we think God's standard is heterosexuality. That, that's God's standard for heterosexuality. But let's think about that. Heterosexuality means attracted to the opposite sex or being sexually intimate with the opposite sex. And if so, isn't that a pretty broad definition that there's many things that the Bible clearly condemns? Adultery, fornication. I mean, a man looking at pornography, that could be considered heterosexual. So that's too broad of a term for us to hold up as a standard. It's not homosexuality either. So what is God's standard? Holy. Sexuality. What is holy sexuality? As I read through the full counsel of God, there's only two options for us to live out our sexuality. One, if you're married, complete faithfulness to your spouse of the opposite sex. Two, if you're single, complete faithfulness through abstinence. Only two options. That's it. And I don't have a term for those, so I made up a term, and I call it holy sexuality. And what I like about that is this applies to all of us. Doesn't matter if you're a man or woman. Doesn't matter if you have heterosexual feelings or homosexual feelings. We all need to pursue holiness. And you might think, okay, that's great. That's fine and dandy. But gays and lesbians, people who have same-sex attractions, only have one option, to be single and abstinent. Not necessarily so. I have a friend who lived as a gay man many years, never was interested in girls growing up, or even he comes to Christ, and he leaves uh, his, his, um, his partner, and he's just begin living as a single man. He was going to be just single for the rest of his life, and he was okay with that. He was in ministry. He had a tight group of family that were, uh, a type of group of friends that were like his family. He began this friendship with this young lady. They were like best buddies. He felt safe with her. She came from a broken past with dating men that really hurt her. So she just was, she didn't want to date anymore. So she knew that he didn't like girls. He knew that she didn't really want to date anymore. So they were, you know, they, they felt safe. Well, after some time, he began noticing some things that, are, that he never noticed before in girls. Her hair. <laughs> she smelled good and she had curves. He says puberty is hard going through once, try going through puberty twice. He got up enough courage, asked her out on a date, and after some dating, he asked her to marry him. And on their wedding night, he told his new bride, he said, honey, I can't explain this. I'm not attracted to any other women. I'm only attracted to you. That is holy sexuality. God brings two people into that miracle of one union of flesh. He will provide all those two people need to fulfill that covenant relationship. That is holy sexuality. So we need to be consistent regarding relationships, sexuality. Third, change. Because does change mean like just becoming straight? Is that the focus, going from gay to straight or no longer having those temptations anymore? Because often, you know, people ask, you know, are you changed? Meaning, are you now straight or do you still have those feelings anymore? Because if you're not, then you, may, you haven't really been fully changed yet. Well, if that's so, do we apply those, some, those same principles to anything else? Say I have a friend who was a drug addict. He abused drugs, comes to Christ, stops, he's abstinent. He's clean for months, but he still, he still admits that he has the urge to do drugs. Would I then look at him and say, you haven't been changed. 
No, of course not, because the manifestation of God's grace is more evident in his life because he has to, has to say no to his flesh and say yes to God. So change is not the absence of struggles, but change is the freedom to choose holiness in the midst of our struggles because God's faithfulness is not shown by taking us out of our struggle, but God's faithfulness is shown by carrying us through it. That's how God works. So we need to be convicted, leading to humility, consistent in three ways regarding relationships, balancing marriage and, and singleness. Second, regarding sexuality. That's not heterosexuality, not homosexuality, but holy sexuality. Regarding change, that doesn't mean that you won't be tempted, but, but that you will be changed in how you live and act. And then third, we must be compassionate. I mean, I've been teaching at a Christian school for, this is going to be eight years and every semester, I get half a dozen students who share with me that they struggle with same-sex sex attractions. They think they're gay. They don't even know what to say. And they continue and say things, I hate myself. I feel that God despises me. Often they suffer with depression and even thoughts of suicide. That should move us. That we have brothers and sisters in Christ who, for whatever reason, feel that they can't share this with the rest of us. So for some, this can be an issue between life and death. So what can we do to be a more safer place for people to be open about their struggles? Struggles with same-sex attractions. First and foremost, we just need to expect that this is with, present within the body of Christ. This isn't just an issue out there for those people. This is something that just affects people. Sometimes people tell me, I don't know why, you know, my friend struggles with this. You know, she came from a good home. She had Christian parents. And I want to ask, okay, what you're saying is, if someone comes from a Christian home and has good parents, does that exempt them from struggling with sin? No, of course not. No. I mean, newsflash. Some of us here actually struggle with sin. Some of us do, right? I mean, all of us do. Come on. What, what's the body of Christ? Are we a group of people that kind of have it all together, got our ducks in a row? You know, we put on our Sunday best, we meet once a week, and we uh, hold hands and we sing kumbaya. Is that what they are? No. The body of Christ is a group of people who know that they're broken and they desperately need Jesus. Let me just be honest with you. I am broken and I desperately need Jesus. Anyone else out there that relate with that? And so let us all hand in hand walk together to him. Not because I can fix you. Not because I have all the answers. But I know someone who does. And his name is Jesus. So just expect that his presence here. Also know your position on this. Are you able to articulate what you believe on this? Often we, we just simply say, oh, that's easy. It's a sin. Don't do it. Okay. But that doesn't really help someone in their time of need. If we're going to have any position, it's going to be we want to lead people into a relationship with Jesus or, if they already know Jesus, into a deeper relationship with Jesus so that they're willing to surrender everything, everything to him, including their sexuality. Jesus wasn't kidding when he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself pick up his cross and follow me. Following Jesus is costly. It'll cost you everything. Why? Because he is going to give you everything. So just know your position. Third, you might have a friend that you're wondering whether they're struggling with this issue, and you're thinking right now, how do I ask them? Don't. Just imagine if someone came up to you out of the blue and asked, um, are you gay? awkward, right? Just a little bit awkward, a lot awkward. You know, 
I don't ever see where that could be really natural and end up well, but you know what you can say? Tell them, you know, I thank God for you. I just want you to know anything you say or do won't change our friendship. You know, we're like that. And when you do that, that creates a safe place and invites them in. We should be doing that with all of our close friends anyway, creating that, that, that space for transparency and safety. And then fourth, we must be serious about fighting against the bullying and the gay jokes. I'll say that again because this is really important. We must be conscious and very proactive in fighting against the gay bullying and the gay jokes. Why is it that non-Christians are taking the banner and fighting against bullying? It should be Christians who are on the forefront in fighting against bullying, right? I mean, because it doesn't matter whether someone is gay or straight or tall or short or round or thin or dark or light. They're created in the image of God, and if someone is making fun of them as a follower of Jesus, I must stand up for them. I must stand up for them. So let's just... We have to help our youth and young adults to realize there is no place, no place in the life of a Christian for a person to be bullied or for us to even witness someone bullying. And the gay jokes, though, the reality is, even as adults, we might say a gay joke here or there. It could just be a simple hand gesture. And what that communicates is we're not safe. And that's not something good to communicate. So let's be more creative. I mean, oftentimes kids will say, that's so gay, that's so gay, you know, that shirt is so gay. A shirt can't be gay, <laughs> you know? But te that television show is, is so gay. They're not even talking about sexuality, so let's be more creative. Instead of saying, that's so gay, how about, um, that's so Baptist, you know, that's so Presbyterian, you know, you add, you know, you put in your little modifier, that, you know, anything other than, you know, that's so gay, so that's what we need to be, to be more compassionate, convicted, consistent, compassionate. Lastly, complete. Complete, and this is talking about how we communicate to others. Our message must be complete. We focus upon God's truth. Why do we focus upon God's truth? Because it's the truth that sets us free. It's the truth that sets us free. So the important question is, what is God's truth when it comes to homosexuality? Oh, that's easy, people will say. It's a sin. Okay, that's true. But unfortunately, what most people do is they put a full stop after that and they say nothing more. And you know, that's equivalent to giving someone a one spiritual law tract. Have you heard of the four spiritual laws? You know, like the, you know, that you share the gospel with? Well, this is the one spiritual law tract that goes something like this. You're a sinner, you're going to hell, sorry. Is that good news? No, that's not good news. But that's the message we're giving to the gay community. You're a sinner, you're going to hell. There's no hope for you. It's no wonder why people in the gay community want nothing to do with the Christians. Because we're not giving them the good news, we're giving them the bad news. We're not giving them the full gospel, we're giving them a partial gospel. We're not giving them the complete truth, we're giving them an incomplete truth. And telling someone an incomplete truth can be just as harmful as telling someone a lie. So what is the complete truth? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He then lists 10 sins. In the Greek, there's two words that focus on homosexuality. Sometimes people look at that list and say, look, gays and lesbians won't inherit the kingdom of God. When they do that, they just conveniently forget about the eight other sins. When we look at all of them, none of us should inherit the kingdom of God. Bad news. But Paul didn't put a full stop there and say nothing more. He went on to say this, such were. Let me say that again. Such were, past
past tense, some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. That, ladies and gentlemen, is not just good news. That is amazing news. That's news that we can declare from the rooftop to the gay community, straight community, to any community that needs to know about Jesus Christ. So our message must be redemptive. It must focus upon the good news. So I want to give you just some practical things here at the end on how do we love. Practical things here, two groups. Brothers and sisters in Christ who know this is sin, but they struggle with same-sex attractions. How do we minister to them? Mentoring, discipleship. Other group, those who don't know Christ in the gay community, or some that they say they're the gay Christians. How do we share Christ with them, the, the true gospel, not a false gospel, to the gay Christians? So first, Christians who struggle with same-sex attra- same attractions. Let's say after this weekend, you do have a friend that confides with you that they struggle. Do you know what to say? Do you know what to do? Here's some things. First, thank them. Do you know how much courage it took to open up to another Christian brother or sister and they trusted you? Thank them. Second, tell them that they're not alone. No matter, you know, they think that they're going to have to go through life all alone and tell them, you know, I don't know all there is to know about this issue, but I want to learn and I want to walk with you to Jesus. That can be the the difference between life and death. Third, help remind them that their identity needs to be in Christ. This is core issue. This was core for me. What really turned me around was not the immorality of homosexuality. What turned me around was identity in Christ. Non-identity in my sexuality, because doesn't the world say, I am gay? There's power in our words. That verb, am, it's a being verb. It's almost like putting an equal sign. You are your sexuality. No. No, we need to fight against that. That is not God's truth. You are not your sexuality. You are created in the image of God. Amen? We're created in the image of God, and that's the message that we need to give. Your identity must be in Jesus Christ. I don't call myself a gay Christian. I don't call myself a straight Christian. I don't call myself an ex-gay Christian. I don't call myself a Chinese Christian. I don't call myself a male Christian. Who cares? I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. If there's going to be any label, which, by the way, I hate labels, I want my label to bear the name of Jesus. And so our identity must be in Jesus Christ alone. Fourth, we need to, uh, we need to uh, be realistic and just don't give these false promises. Oh, read the Bible more. Pray really, really hard and you could pray away the gay. No. That's not how it happens. Besides, we don't read the Bible and pray so that we don't have any difficulties. We read the Bible and pray so that when difficulties come, we remain faithful. Fifth, don't focus on the externals. Sometimes we focus so much on the externals. You know, a young lady coming out of lesbian relationship, oh, make her hair grow out long, give her a nice makeover, tight-fitting dress, and she'll be straight in no time. That's focusing on the outside. We need to focus on the heart. Sixth, We need to really encourage God-honoring same-sex friendships, same-sex relationships. I needed to see this is how men love, love one another in healthy, God-honoring, non-sexual ways. Because at the core, homosexuality, intimacy with the same sex, that's something that we all should have. That's something that God put in all of us. So actually, homosexuality, it's a legitimate need fulfilled in an illegitimate way. All sin is a legitimate need fulfilled in an illegitimate way. So then how do we share Christ with those in the gay community? LGBT, that's an acronym that stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender. Before I tell you what we should do, this is what we should not do. Do not compare this with an addiction. 
Not all gay lesbians do drugs are promiscuous. Unfortunately, that's part of my story. Not all gay men are pedophiles. That's, that's a myth. Um, and don't, also, don't use these two words, lifestyle and choice. The reason is because, again, it comes down to identity. People in the gay community, they don't see this as something they do. They see this as who they are. I truly believe that back then. I don't anymore. But if I can just not use a word or two for the sake of winning someone to Christ, I'm willing to do that. Third, don't use the phrase, love the sinner, hate the, hate the sin. Meaning, don't say it, we live it, but you don't have to tell others that. You know, oh, I'm loving you, but I'm hating your sin. That's not really endearing. You know, it's not, I mean, oh, I feel so warm now. No, you know, so also don't feel the need that you have to debate with people all the time. There is a time for truth, but that's when God begins softening their heart. For example, if someone asks you, do you think this is a sin? They're not really wanting to have a conversation. They just want to see, are you on my side or that side? In that situation, I would say, you know, I don't want to argue all the time. I value our friendship more than just debating. Can we celebrate our similarities and tolerate our differences? Leave it at that. But if they do ask you, say, what does the Bible say? You have this open door of ministry. And I'm just going to end with this. This is what you should do. First, pray. Pray. With these prayer meetings coming up, we're praying for the city of Auckland. Let's pray that hearts would be changed. Let's pray for the gay community to come to know Jesus. Let's pray for the lesbian community to no come to know Jesus. Let's pray for the Fafafini to come to know Jesus. We need these people. There are people in the gay community that are part of the family of God. They're just, they just don't know it yet. And how does that happen? Not by something that we say, not by some, you know, really neat program, but by the power of the living God. And we must pray for that. Pray and fast. Second, second, listen. Listen, don't be quick to speak, but be quick to listen. And that's hard for a preacher, I know that, but we need to be more ready to listen and build relationships. Third, be intentional. Don't be afraid to take someone out to dinner. Have your gay neighbor over for coffee. And I know that people are going to like look at you and say, what are you doing eating with that sinner? But isn't that what the Pharisees said to Jesus? And I know it, if you have someone in your home, you might be thinking, well, am I condoning their sin? I mean, you know, if he's, he's gay and if I eat dinner with them, am I condoning their sin? Well, don't we normally have sinners over for dinner? Right? I mean, just saying. Just saying. So, uh, you know, just have them over for dinner. You're not, you know, if they want to stay overnight, I wouldn't put them in the same room. So those of you guys that have loved ones, no, I mean, really, parents ask me that all the time. If I have my son who's gay, he want to bring his partner over, what should I do? Have him come over. If they stay overnight, I would say, I'd love for you to stay overnight. I would just put you in two separate rooms. Why? Because if I have a son who's, who's straight and brings home his girlfriend, I wouldn't put them in the same room if they're not married, Right? So we must be consistent. Be intentional forth. Be patient and persistent. Don't think that this is just your pet project for the next six months. It's going to take time. Eight years for me is short. People often pray for decades. Lastly, be transparent. Share what God is doing in your life lately. I know it's not easy to share the gospel with people who want nothing to do with God. I know that. But what you can do is share what the gospel is doing in your life lately. None of us, if you know Jesus, you shouldn't be the same as you were 10 years ago, 10 months ago, or even 10 weeks ago. We should be continually transformed by the Holy Spirit. And we, let's just share that. They can't argue with that. You know, I would never have considered the gospel if I didn't see the gospel live in my parents' lives. 
I would not have picked up that Bible from the trash can if I didn't see the Bible lived out of my father's life and my mother's life. I didn't leave pursuing gay relationships because I thought they were so bad. I didn't leave it because I thought they were so wicked. I left it because I found something better. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Our job as followers of Jesus Christ is to show a dying world that no matter what they might be clinging to, all the fool's gold in the world, whether it's a job, a career, a big house, whether it's even something good like family or a spouse or children, not only is Jesus better, Jesus better than all of that, but Jesus is best. So might we, as we go forth into this world, into this mission field, know that before anything else, that Jesus is best. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you for Jesus. Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, who was sent to die for me, who came not because he wanted to be served, but he came to serve. Lord, there's so many people who still have yet to come to know you. Lord, might you enable us, not in our strength, not in our abilities, but in our weaknesses. Help us, Lord God. Lord, many of us have prodigals, prodigal father, prodigal mother, prodigal cousin, and they're away from you, Lord God, and it breaks our hearts, but it breaks your hearts even more. And Lord, as hopeless as things might seem, help us to not give up on hope. Lord, we know that you are the God of hope. You didn't give up on us, as hopeless as we were, as hopeless as I was. Help us, God, to stand strong. God, we love you. Give us the power and strength to continue each day knowing that you are in control. And help us to show the world that Jesus is best. God, we love you. We praise you. And we ask this in the beautiful, matchless name of Jesus, the Messiah. And the people of God said, amen. Let's stand together, please. If you've got children in the kids' church, could you go immediately, please, and collect them because uh, they'll be waiting for them, for you to find their kids. Okay, just bow your heads in prayer, please. Maybe people here tonight and you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You're not a Christian. You're not, not saved. I want to give you an opportunity to do that in the 